Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. How does it feel to have grown up as a fan of a team that has the resources to fix the NHL draft lottery? I feel blessed. I think all of my sporting choices have been blessed. I also chose Chelsea as my club, and we obviously have a Russian oligarch running us, so things are going to turn out our way. And here we now have the New York Rangers and um, the oligarchs of the ping pong balls that have twisted in our favor. So yeah, um, it's been a really great 2020 for me personally. My favorite thing about the conspiracy theories that the NHL fixed the draft for the Rangers uh, because that guy dropped the ball that was either you know filled with helium or had some sort of magnetic lube on it to allow it to uh, travel to the top of the lotto machine. My favorite conspiracy theory is the fact that they did this uh, with James Dolan still owning the Rangers, uh, knowing the heat <laughs> that he and Gary Bettman have had through the years. It's pretty hilarious. Like, of all the guys that the NHL is not... Like, there's two guys the NHL's not bending over to help. It's like Eugene Melnick and James Dolan. <laughs> and that's about it. Correct. So and if they were going to bend over backwards, wouldn't you think they would have fixed it for Connor McDavid not to have him end up in Edmonton? One exactly. Exactly. All right. We got a big show today, but real, real quick on the lottery. The team that broke your heart that didn't win the lottery was who? I really fell for the Minnesota Wild. There's something about Bill Guerin walking into this situation that just feels tragic to me. Like, he just inherited a really bad roster with bad contracts, and I feel like Kirill Kaprizov is coming into the league, and it's awesome, and I just wish that he had a cool, fun, young wingman that's fast to come in with him. Yeah, I feel like I agree with you. I feel like the Wild, I mean, the Wild before Kaprizov, you know, it, it was like Marion Gabrick and that's it as far as homegrown offensive talent. And like, I mean, for being a team in Minnesota, they've kind of been like rudderless and, and you know, the most personality they ever had was when they spent a bajillion dollars to bring in two other guys from outside the organization. And even that didn't really produce the results. So it would have been cool to see Minnesota become the team of Alexis Lafreniere but uh, but uh, c'est la vie. They, they simply didn't have the resources to pay off the Ernst and Young guy and uh, win the draft lottery. Thanks, Jim right. Dolan. Appreciate yeah. you. Thanks, Jim Dolan. Uh, coming up on uh, it's, it's the price of the of the beer at MSG. It's forever growing higher and giving them all the resources. Uh, coming up on this edition of ESPN on Ice, we have John Davidson, JD, our old friend, president of the Rangers, to talk about their big week or awkward week, actually, uh, plus Sarah McClellan, uh, Star Tribune, Minnesota Wild writer, speaking of the Wild, who was up in Edmonton, uh, kind of uh, bubble adjacent, but also inside the bubble to cover games. Obviously, the Wild are done, but Sarah's going to join us to talk about her experiences and then obviously uh, what should be an interesting offseason for Minnesota. Uh, all that and more, obviously, playoff hockey, too, on this edition of ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And if we're going to start talking about anything, it's going to be, you got it, the fourth longest game in National Hockey League history. Five overtimes over six hours long. Seth Jones, I tallied it up. Seth Jones skated longer in one game than the total running time of the 1940s Disney classic Dumbo. Uh, this is the kind of stats you can get from this dumb podcast. Um what an what an incredible! And here's the thing about a, the five overtime game with Tampa and and uh, and Columbus. It was actually really entertaining. Like like it, it was it was a a 
it wasn't a, a slog. It wasn't just like, I mean, people were gassed by the end for sure. But like, I thought the gameplay was actually pretty good for most of the five overtimes. Uh, totally agree. And maybe that's because the refs just let them play <laughs> and we're not calling anything. Uh, but yeah, no, if you want some other fun stats, the Lightning had 88 shots, which is the exact same amount that the Rangers had in three games uh, in their time <laughs> in the bubble. So that's my favorite. Um, but yeah, no, it was an incredible game. I, I think it reminded us why we love playoff hockey. There's nothing to it. Seth Jones, I really feel like Tortorella is violating some Canadian labor laws with the way he's using him. But we are proving <laughs> that this is our great American hope. This guy can do it all. I, I swear to God, were you watching the TV? I tried to watch a play where Seth Jones wasn't on the ice, and I felt like it was never happening. Yeah, it's going to be great to see him uh, with a gold medal around his neck at the next Olympics. Um, he, here's the thing. Um, you bring up the penalties. There's been this debate. I think Mike Milbury helped spark it by taking a picture of the Space Needle in Toronto <laughs> and uh, tweeting it out <laughs> last night. On his Motorola ra- razor. Oh, my God. It's like, I mean, the only way that that picture could be less clear is if he had, like, a court illustrator uh, draw it for him <laughs> as he was standing there and then tried to take a picture of it. Listen, he, he sparked this debate about whether or not marathon overtimes should end with a tweak to the overtime rules i don't think he was saying we should go directly to a three-on-three or or a shootout uh, and get the word shoot out of your uh, shootout out of your mouth it's never going to come into the playoffs over over gary bettman's dead body um the uh but i think he was making a point that others have made over over time which is like when you get past three overtimes like for the sake of health for the sake of can the kids see the end of the game on all that, like maybe then go to four on four, go to three on three. Ultimately, I'd like to see it left up to the players. Like maybe the PA votes and says, you know what? Maybe we don't need five overtimes. I think most of them would vote against it and say, let's just keep playing. Um, but I am curious to know what you think about at some point, maybe getting away from the five on five marathon overtime thing and trying to develop a way to have these games end before they cross the six hour mark. Well, first, you forgot to mention the number one reason of why we cannot have shootouts in playoff hockey, and that's because our dear colleague, John Bucigross, created an entire economy on the <laughs> overtime challenge, and it would put him out of business. We can't. That's, it's that's just, true. no, we can't, we can't do him bad, uh, wrong Excellent. like that. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was thinking that as well, and I was thinking, okay, if this is four on four, this would probably end sooner. If this was three on three, it would definitely end sooner. But I'm not necessarily sure that it has to end sooner. And I I think that a lot of the discourse last night was because there were so many games happening in the bubble because it literally moved the game one of the Hurricanes and Bruins series to the next day. This is unusual. We're typically not having these like peewee style tournaments where everyone's got to get off the ice 90 minutes to disinfect the benches, which, by the way. Can we just like take a pause of how ridiculous that is? They're putting all these precautions into making this bubble safe, tasting everybody every day. And then there's like little things they do, like, well, we have to spend 90 minutes to disinfect the benches. Hey. Yeah. And then they're all going to spit and claw at each but other it's, for... It's working. It's working, though. <laughs> sure, it's working. It's working. It's working. It's working. You got to keep it working. Yeah, exactly. I, I just feel like it would be arbitrary to decide, okay, after the third overtime period, then we go to four and four, and then at the fifth, we go to three on three. I, like you said, it, it would go to a player vote, likely, and I, I just don't think the players would go for it. You're probably right. What they should go for is this, and what the NHL should go for is this. We had five overtimes last night, okay? So that is three periods of regulation plus 
what three three almost three more in overtime yes almost two full games periods of hockey six hours yeah okay so i think the entire stars and flames game was played between like the first and second overtime so we get we get all these overtimes six hours of hockey five overtimes two penalties are called two penalties are called one of them's puck over the glass which they have to call Quite and the obvious, other one was yes. a high stick on Nick Felino. There's like three types of, of penalties that are called in overtime. They're the ones that you have to call, like puck over the glass and too many men. Too many there men. Are, yeah. Yeah. There are the high sticking ones, which usually are going to get a call um, because they're super dangerous. And then, like, there is the Felino on Morgan Riley one, where if it's an egregious play in the offensive zone to create a scoring chance for one team, that might get a call. Not all the time, but it might get a call. Two penalties in five overtimes is completely unacceptable. It is garbage. It is reinforcing the thing that I have said for decades about this dumb sport, which is that the referees, beautiful men, all of them, and women, it's great. They're, they all do their job very well. They run this thing by a script. Anybody who's seen hockey for more than two minutes knows exactly when a penalty is going to be called in the third period for a team trailing by a goal. It's a script. They all run it. If they've got all got the same script. And you know what the script says when you flip the page that says to triple overtime? It says, don't call anything. Let them play. And it's garbage. It's why these games go on forever is because they don't. And the thing is, is like, I've seen the argument of being like, oh, if you drop it to four on four, well, that's not, that's not fair. That's not regulation hockey. That's a crappy way to end the game. You know what's a crappy a way to end way. the game? This, this mutated garbage hockey that we see in overtime where they're not calling penalties. It's not even the same game you played for the first three periods. So if you're going to do this, just don't call any penalties ever. Make it Thunderdome. Just let them play all the time if you're not going to call penalties in overtime and have it be a real a real hockey game. I think the issue is the inconsistency. Like, I look at that Cam Atkinson play where he crashed into the net. It was head been behind him. And I'm okay with the no call because I don't know what that call would have been. It wasn't tripping. It wasn't holding. But in the qualification round, that was a penalty shot. Like, we saw two penalty shots in one game in the qualification <laughs> round. Like, you can't be that inconsistent. And then when you had game five of Toronto versus Columbus, they literally changed the officiating crew beforehand because of the way they called penalties. So yeah. I do think the inconsistency um, gives fans a reason to be upset. But I say this again, like I said last night when we were watching this five-overtime game. If you're the Columbus Blue Jackets and you're complaining about, like, an obstruction call or something not being whistled for you, I mean, come on. That's a big old glass house and you're throwing boulders. Every single time the Toronto Maple Leafs <laughs> tried to try to connect the pass in the first in the qualification round, it was it was like their player was being operated as a marionette. There was just a stick there every single time around them, manipulating their body so they couldn't get the puck. That team obstructs to the nth degree. And so to not get a call, listen, maybe they got jobbed. I mean, Atkinson kind of fell, but maybe they got jobbed. But you are the last team in this league to start complaining about things not being called because you get away with a murder on the ice to play the defensive style that you play. Come on with that. Anyways. Speaking of get away, getting away with things, uh, obviously no uh, FBI investigation into the Rangers fixing the draft lottery. Let's talk to John Davidson about their good fortune. Joining us now on the line is our old friend, John Davidson, the current president of the New York Hockey Rangers. 
and a man who I imagine has had a pretty good week. JD, uh, first off, thanks for joining us again. Now tell us the emotions, the emotional journey of John Davidson as you saw that little ping pong ball come out of the machine and the Rangers win the lottery. Well, uh, first of all, hello, gang. Um, it, it's a strange week, to be honest with you, when we were so excited about getting up to Toronto under the bubble to play hockey, and boom, we were out in three games, and that was very disappointing, even though there was some good things, the positive things that we got out of it. And then we uh, come home, and the next thing on the uh, agenda is the is the lottery and the number one pick. And I went in my home with my wife, and I went up to my superstitious chair and sat there and waited and waited and then the little ping pong ball started to bounce around i couldn't watch i looked away <laughs> i couldn't watch and all of a sudden my wife started screaming so i go home oh i i looked and sure enough we had won and uh it was it was pretty pretty emotional for me to be honest with you i i uh like to chat that was one of the few times in my life i was speechless and uh so you know, the hockey gods smiled. I, I asked for a few favors up there, my parents and things, and uh, sure enough, this thing worked out. And we're excited. It's it's going to be great for hockey, um, for the Rangers, obviously, for New York hockey. Uh, anytime you have a chance at a number one pick, it's, just, it's a very special time. We're in the middle of our build, so this is certainly going to be a big, big part of it. Now, listen, I, I know that the supernatural worked in your favor. You got the lucky chair. You got the whole thing. What did you think when that guy dropped the ball? Did you think, wait a second? <laughs> no, we both we both said that's an omen. That's an omen. <laughs> and and I know everybody's talking conspiracy. Everybody says, well, that told, tells you something. And then everybody else is saying, well, if the ball went down, how could it go up? It had to be weighted. It had to be heavy. You know? Oh, I mean, it's been crazy out there. It's I'm not a. I try not to read too much with the social media, even though I have two daughters who send me a lot of things. But there's been some funny stuff that's been said. Uh, there's there's some humor out there. I can tell you that. John, you mentioned you guys are in the middle of this build, and you get the number one pick, which is a huge deal. I'm curious. Before you had the number one pick, what were your priorities this off season to get done with this roster? And now that you have the number one pick, how does that alter your plans? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Nothing's normal. I mean, zero is zippo. So you know, you usually when you're in hockey, whether you're a player or you're a part of management, you have a have a. It's kind of like a year long plan of when things happen the playoffs, when they're over, the Hall of Fame draft, the free agency, the development camp, and then you go through arbitration, and then you get into uh, and then you get into Traverse City for the uh, September tournament and all this stuff. And this is not normal. Everything is different. Right now we're having a lot of meetings regarding our, our – uh, and Zoom calls with all our players, end-of-the-season talks. But, so the whole thing is uh, it's somewhat different. But very interesting because of it. Uh, for us, we we are trying to understand and analyze and stay with the game plan that we have. When you when you're fortunate like we are and get the number one pick, that can help expedite your way of thinking. But we're still going to stay with our plan. Um, one of the big uh, things coming up will be our goaltending. We're going to have two goaltenders next year, not three. So we're having uh, lots of discussions about that. 
I myself have talked to uh, to Henrik Lundqvist when we got back from Toronto. We had a great conversation that'll stay in house, and uh, we're working through things. Nothing's been decided, uh, but we're working through things. So I, I'm in a in a in a position here with our group that we're we're staying with our plan. We're setting up the off season now for the programs for the players, and we're going to get better and better and better. And uh, some good things did happen in the bubble. Some good young players played well. We had Keandre Miller, who's a big part of our future, coming out of the University of Wisconsin. He was at our training camp, couldn't play in Toronto because of the rules. But boy, was he good, and I mean really good. So things like that are positive, and we're going to keep that mindset going forward. You did have three goalies, and that's unusual. Um, That's not something that we typically get. And I think a lot of us expected it to not work out, for them to be some drama or for one of the guys, you know, maybe to get traded. Why do you think it worked for you guys? Why why did you come out of this, you know, feeling okay about where you're at? Well, all three are good to start with. Um, it would not have worked if Henrik Lundqvist was not the person that he is. He's a very, very classy individual. He's played his entire career with the Rangers. And he's he's got a, um, a competitive yet open and smart, intelligent mind. And uh, we had to, when you're when you're in a, in a situation where we are and we're looking north, trying to get better, you have to understand that with goaltending, you have to figure out who it's going to be long-term. And we had to take a goalie like Shesterkin, and we had to play him. He, had, he, had, he was lights out in the American League. I mean, lights out. So he had his opportunity to play. Everybody understood it, and he goes, I think it was 9-1. and one. So, so these are the types of, of, of things you have to do as a management group to figure out where you're going to be, you know, two, three, four, five years from now. And if you don't take a look at it, it doesn't work. Now, Henrik was absolutely understanding, and, and the class was oozing out of him how he didn't come in with a bad attitude. He came in here and he worked his tail off every single day, as did Georgia. So it, I've seen three goalies before. I've seen it work before. I've seen it not work before. This one, I would say, it worked because of the open communication with everybody involved, and then with the uh, with the with the future Hall of Famer in Lundqvist, the way he handled things was extraordinarily good. Does he want to play next year, Hank? Don't know yet. We're getting things figured out. It's uh, you know he's he's uh, the season just ended, so it takes time to figure things out. Don Meehan is a very strong, smart, good agent. Uh, Hank's got his own way of thinking. He's talking to his family, figuring things out. We're figuring things out, so. It'll get taken care of, but but everything takes its own time. It's there's no set date where he's got to make a decision of what he wants to do or we want to do. This will this will figure itself out after everybody gets together and and think things through. All right, let me let me ask you about that that top pick again. You've mentioned a few times that you're still in this build. You're, you're you know you've amassed a lot of prospects. You have got a lot going on for you. Has there is there any mind to be paid to the idea that with the a couple of teams behind you that would ante up pretty big for the first overall pick in L.A. and Ottawa, uh, is there any mind paid to potentially trading that pick? You know, we we just we just got the the pick thing. The dust hasn't even settled. The excitement is certainly here in New York. I know people have uh, they've had a lot of calls downtown about getting season tickets their way. It's been very good that part of the business. I, I think, you know, I go back to the year the draft was in Columbus. And uh, 
we, amongst other teams, had talked to Chicago. They had the number one pick. And we uh, we made a significant offer. Uh, the Blackhawks, led by Dale Talon, said, no, no, we're going with number one. We're sticking with it, and that's that. Patrick Kane was a pretty good pick. So these types of things, somebody would have to blow the, the socks, the shoes, everything right off your feet if you're ever going to change from something like that. So we, we're, we're excited. We're where we are. We have the number one pick. It's, it's a great time for us, and we'll just see where everything goes. Now, the presumed number one pick is Alexis Lafreniere, who's a winger, and he's supposed to be a very good winger. But it appears to me that uh, what you guys could really use right now is some D-men and center depth. How concerned are you, specifically with center, um, of your depth just in the organization? Is that something that you'll have to find from outside? Well, you know, you know I, I think that, uh, Emily, with just about every team in the league, they need a centerman or a defenseman. It's just it's, it's so hard. I remember the Rangers won in 94. They had three Hall of Fame defensemen on that on that. Uh, on that blue line with Brian Leach and Kevin Lowe and Sergey Zuboff, they're hard to find. Centermen are really hard to find. So when you, what, what you try to do in this business is build up assets. And when you have good, real strong depth with your assets, maybe a deal can be made down the road. And I'll go back and Yarmo uh, Kekalainen uh, with Columbus. We were running the club there. And there was a lot of defensemen playing in Nashville. They didn't have centermen. We had uh, Ryan Johansson, and they had Seth Jones. So it was a perfect fit for both teams to try to make the deal. And sometimes, and that was a hockey trade. Everybody was talking about at that point in time where trades were made because of contracts and budgets and caps and all that. That was a real hockey trade. Uh, Nashville almost won the Stanley Cup, and Right now, uh, Seth Jones, he has a chance to be a Norris, Norris uh, Trophy winner. He's that good. So when you build up your assets, it gives you a chance. And if you build up your winger assets or your uh, right winger assets or your, your D assets, something else could come your way because another team may need something that you have. So it's a matter of being patient, trying to find out uh, what other teams have and, and continue to draft well and build those assets up. Adam Fox for Leon Dreisaitl, who says no, right? No? <laughs> yeah. Adam, Adam Fox had a good year for us. That he was, did. He did. That was a hey. real good deal that Jeff, Jeff Gordon made to, uh, to get him to the organization. He's going to be a terrific player. He's terrific. All right, let me ask you one final question for me as, as team president. Um, I think a lot of us are really interested in knowing a bit more about what next season could look like insofar as from a business perspective. Like we know from hockey business, the cap's going to be flat, the whole thing. What are your, what's your um, current expectation for the possibility of starting the season with fans in the stands at MSG and just overall what the business outlook for a team like the Rangers, who obviously in a, in a very different situation than the other teams, what does it look like? I think it's, I think as far as the business plans go, the, the garden, um, they prepare for anything and everything all the time. And, uh, of course, we rely on Gary Bettman and Bill Daly with the NHL uh, as far as direction goes. And they've been terrific. This bubble idea has worked to a T. It's been sensational. It was great that the PA and the league got together to extend the CBA. So there's been a lot of good things that way. 
Now, regarding the unknown, which is what it is, we don't know. We have no idea. Will there be a vaccine sooner than later? Will there be this? Will there be that? I don't know. Um, I, I know that if everybody had their druthers, we'd like to start a camp sometime in November, play in December, but we can't say if that's going to happen. It may come down to a shortened season starting up in January. Who knows? We want fans in the building, obviously. That's part and parcel with our game, but we don't know if that can happen. So what, what you try to do is, is um, go about your business, make sure your players are given their programs and they adhere to that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, rely on the science of, of what this virus has done with the people that lead that end of things. And then uh, our, our league will make some strong decisions, which they always have. So be prepared for anything and everything, but it's all about the unknown is what it is. Awesome. Well, John, we so appreciate your time and congratulations. I know the week began a little somber, but things turned up uh, okay for the New York Rangers. So enjoy yeah, it for the great, next great, little bit. Big, great big cherry on top. Thanks, Emily. Good talking <laughs> to you, Greg. Take care of yourselves and stay safe. Our thanks to John Davidson. J.D., of course, uh, for those who are too young to remember, an incredible color commentator back in the day uh, for the NHL, not only for the Rangers broadcast, but nationally. Um, just great. I, I still miss him in the booth. I, feel, I think he might still be one of my favorite color commentators of all time. And, and, I mean, and, the way he color commentated him and his wife sitting there on the couch listening to the... <laughs> yeah, that's right. ...watching like, the you, broadcast like was amazing. There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, he's, JD's one of the best. We're so happy that he's a friend of the show. Uh, moving on to other series in the qualification round besides the Lightning and the um, the Blue Jackets. Uh, Philly-Montreal, are you expecting the uh, Carey Price-Carter-Hart showdown throughout this series? Keep in mind that some of these series will have started, games been played by the time you hear this, but what's your what was your read on Philly-Montreal? Um, I do think I believe in Philly. I, I'm a believer. I think they're a very well-balanced team um, as long as goaltending holds up, which I don't have any doubts that it will. This is a team that could go far. I think my biggest impression with Montreal in the first round was it's not just Carey Price. The entire defensive buy-in from this team is quite strong, and their defensive group is pretty good. Like, Shea Weber is playing the best hockey he's ever played as a Montreal Canadian, and that's a really good thing for them. So I don't think they're going to be an easy out, um, but I like Phil, the Flyers here, and really it's because the second line is really good. The first line wasn't even clicking, and, and once Claude Giroux gets going and Couturier gets going, like, other teams are in trouble. I also think it's funny with Montreal that like the, the whisper about them coming into the playoffs was like they didn't want to be there because they were the 24th yeah. seed and and there, and there was like stories of like you know the veteran leaders on the team having to whip everybody into shape and be like you, you we should go to the bubble and we'll do good and then it turned out according to Jim Rutherford it was the Penguins who didn't want to be there <laughs> like that was his inference in his post uh, series press conference just like yeah maybe some guys didn't want to be there they want to be back with their families so we had it all wrong Montreal totally into the bubble Pittsburgh f the bubble we hate that so much. Yeah. Um, Washington, uh, the Islanders, that game is actually just starting as we're doing the podcast. Uh, John Carlson apparently playing for Washington. This was, of course, the Barry Trotz Revenge series. Um, I think the thing that a lot of people don't recognize that as much as Barry Trotz would want to you know, exact his revenge on the Capitals for not paying him, there's also a number of the core Capitals players in that, that Stanley Cup team that would like nothing more than to beat Barry Trotz in this series, too. I think, I think animosity kind of works both ways for that team a little bit. 
agree. This is my the series that I predicted an upset in. I believe in the Islanders. And it's part of it is like, I don't know, there's something that just feels a little bit off about the Capitals. Mm-hmm. Um, they were one of those teams that didn't play great in the round robin. I've kind of heard whispers of this team not loving Todd Reardon and maybe getting a little sick of his message. Um, I came up the other day, though, Greg, with the perfect plan for Braden Holtby, and I want you to hear it. Okay. What? I think knowing what I know about Braden, he wants to be a number one goal center. He doesn't want to go somewhere where he's not guaranteed, like, you know, 40 starts. So he might not get that next year unless he's willing to go to, like, Buffalo, which I don't know if he is. What if he sits out next season, relaxes, chills, and then becomes the first free agent for the Seattle Kraken and becomes mm. their franchise goaltender? His family can live in Idaho. He can live his nice, good activist life out there. I, I think it. that definitely fits his purview. I think that's not a bad idea. Although, th- when you started talking about that, all I could think of is, is there a way to get him to Toronto? Get that postseason <laughs> goaltender acumen that he has between the pipes. And wouldn't it be so terrible for the rest of the league if he signs there on like a one-year, $1 million deal? <laughs> it'd, be all, it'd be awful for Holpe because he's so laid back and cool that like, why would you put yourself in that situation? I think he um, wants to win. I, th- I think the biggest thing for him is to be a number one and lead a team to victory. You could do a lot worse than Braden Holpe if you're the Leafs. Uh, Boston, Carolina, that game one, luck some- miraculously ended before we did the podcast with uh, Patrice Bergeron scoring a really bad, overcommitted uh, Peter Morazic uh, in goal. Who was excellent in the game overtime. before that? Yeah, yeah it, wasn't, it wasn't a good moment, though, at the end. Uh, so the Bruins... Uh, there are, there are two teams that were wondering if they can flip the switch, and the Bruins flipped the switch. They played pretty well in that game. I think Carolina, which had an amazing qualification round defensively against the Rangers, did not uh, surprisingly have a good defensive game against the uh, Bruins. But down Justin Williams and Sammy Vatten in that game, they were both unfit to play, so maybe they come back in, in game two. And also we should mention uh, totally jobbed on one of the goals uh, by uh, some bizarre happenstance where um, it, it, it could have been called a hand pass, but they claimed that, that uh, Mrazic had possession of the puck, but if he had possession of the puck, it should have been frozen. Yada, yada, yada. More chicanery from the NHL's officiating. And uh, I don't know. I picked. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't like the fact that so many of us picked Carolina in this series, and now I see why, because the Bruins are really good. They can flip this. They're that veteran team that has the buy-in from their leaders that they could flip the squitch. I just think it's so hilarious. Like, Brad Marchand was out there calling it preseason games. Then he goes in the NBC uh, Sports Intermission show and calls it exhibition games. Like, they really did not take that round robin seriously. Uh, And they want to let everybody know. The only observation I had in that Canes game is Brady Shea was all over the place doing a lot of things that made me cringe. (laughs) (laughs) It was a rough night for him. Yeah. Good, good quarterback though, according to the uh, the social videos that the uh, Carolina Hurricanes I made from their like play dates. Like uh, uncle was like a quarterback for the Minnesota Golden Gophers, or I think he's Whoa. got something. There yeah, I remember that in a bio back in the day. All right. Uh, speaking of flipping the switch, let's go to the St. Louis Vancouver series. Um, that there were so many bad trends for the Blues in the qualific- in the uh, round robin that maybe mm-hmm. it's a thing where they were treating it just like a preseason too, but. I mean, they just look bad, and and I think Vancouver is a dangerous team in the sense that they've got a little proof of concept. They've got some wind in their sails. The young guys are believing in, in themselves. Um, that's I I picked the upset in that series, 
of the two teams, the Blues and the Bruins, the, the Blues were the team that I was a bit more concerned could not flip the switch after the uh, round robin. Interesting. That's one of those series where, like, I haven't thought as much about as the other series. And, like, you're on the Western Conference, so you've done all the previews and you're, you're watching them more. But, like, that can produce some really good hockey. Like, oh, I, yeah. I think those are going to be some really good games. Other contrast good games, in style. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Flame Stars. Oof. Who would have thunk it? They could score I goals. Know. Uh, the stars could. Um, quickly. Yeah, that, that series is going to be awesome to me. I think that's the series. Like, any series the Flames are in are the one with the biggest potential for fireworks, brawls, suspensions. Um, and I just feel like there's enough ego and emotion on both teams that this is going to get heated. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first period of that game, you had a Corey Perry-Matthew Kachuk fight. Um which is one of those fights where half the people watching it are like rooting for the meteor to hit the earth at that moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you're right. It could it could get pretty contentious and uh, interesting goalie situation with the uh, stars as well with Kadobin getting this game one start to trying to work Bishop back into the lineup. And um, I mean, I think I think Bishop is the superior goalie. I think that's a really good goalie battery. But I do think his yeah. postseason stats are real good and could certainly turn the series in a different direction uh, if and when he comes back for them. Um, Vegas and Chicago, we got to taste that series. I, I put my, uh, reputation on the line, pick this, the sweep in this one. I mean, no one really thought Chicago was going to win outside of our editor, Tim Cavanaugh, but, uh, but Vegas to me was a superior team, superior to the point where I was confident they could put them away in four and, uh, through one game, you know, sample sizes people, but through one game, I feel pretty confident that that was a good pick. All right, well, you didn't hear me whispering, but I also picked the Blackhawks. You picked the Blackhawks, too? I did. I did. I just, uh, they were like the Canadians, that other team that you heard of. There were, like, rumors, like, oh, Jonathan Taze didn't even want to be there. Like, this team was going to vote against it, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'd rather have Lafreniere. And Jonathan Taze is out there playing like it's 2010. Oh, he was Um, so good in the first round. He was so good. I think Duncan Keep does not get enough love. I think he got grouped in with Brent Seabrook over the last couple years as guys who were uh, regressing and really Keith has done such an amazing job um, maintaining his conditioning so he can play so much tonight and I think I think he still has a lot of great hockey in him and I just feel like they finally have that depth scoring that can come through um, but yeah the first game wasn't great not great not at all uh, and and Vegas didn't even get I mean Vegas was like in second gear in that game too a lot of the time yeah. it was just really impressive and Robin Laner obviously gets the crease um, if they end up that's winning, a if fascinating they, situation yeah. If they end up winning the Western Conference uh, and, and play for the Cup again, and, and he's the primary goaltender, like what a ballsy move by by the Vegas management to go out and make that deal. Like face of the franchise, Mark Andre Fleury, and you're not just going to like this isn't like a Jack Campbell trade where you're just trying to give him a little bit of help. This is like an insurance policy, and it turned mm-hmm. out to be a real good one. If if Laner ends up you know doing what he did in the first game in that series. Finally, you know, uh, wait, my oh, last sorry. thought on that, though, I was thinking a lot about um, Marc-Andre Fleury and like how he got from this position where he's the face of the franchise to not starting their first playoff game. And really, it's because he was overburdened so much of it for his entire career in Vegas. They never had a really good, competent backup and he was playing so much. And yeah. I feel like he was in the same boat in the same class as Tuka Rask. And Boston managed Tuka. They got him Halak, who they played more, and they kept him rested. And therefore, Rask is really rested and looks great in the postseason. And I wish Vegas had done that a little sooner for Marc Andre. Yeah, yeah, that, you're very. It's a very true statement you just made. Um, 
Thank you. Uh, Colorado, Arizona. The Coyotes got one shot in this series. His name is Darcy Kemper. Uh, he was incredible <laughs> against the Predators. I don't know if he's going to be able to hold the fort against a very good Colorado team. Uh, Rick, Rick Tockett's become my, my favorite Zoom coach, I think, in these playoffs. <laughs> Just a real fun listen. I mean, like somebody asked me the other day, like, what are the challenges the Avalanche present the Coyotes? And his answer was like, do you got an hour? Do you have all day? I mean, it's yeah. great. Like, he's just really funny. I dig him. He's, I mean, he's a friend of the show. He's been on the show before, but like, he's he's really kind of like, I don't know. You put a, a, a goofball in an empty room, and I think he kind of finds himself a little bit. And, and Tockett was has been really good. Uh, might be the last round we get to Rob... hear him, but, <laughs> but yeah, you know, he's been pretty good. But Rob Brindamore is like that too, where it's just like kind of unfiltered and it's just like just the hockey guy talking hockey with whoever wants to chat with him, and he'll just tell you stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, that Avalanche team, I. I hope that we can see them go to their full potential because I think they can just be so scary good. Yeah, real good. All right, that's uh, uh, your brief look at the qualifi- at the qualification. You see, just call the playoffs. Oh, God, uh, the quarterfinal round. Uh, now let's talk to somebody who was in the qualification round uh, and going to give us some education about the bubble and life around the bubble. It's Sarah McClellan from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. <laughs> And now joining us on the line is the terrific Minnesota Wild reporter for the Star Tribune. It is Sarah McClellan. Now, Sarah's paper sent her up to Edmonton, where she had to quarantine for 14 days to cover the Minnesota Wild's unfortunate first round, not even exit, uh, not even a first round. But you were there, and we want to hear all about just what that experience was like. So, like, when people ask, what was it like watching games in empty arena and doing the quarantine and all that, what's your kind of, like, one-minute answer? It is so different than anything I've ever experienced before. Uh, You know, it's funny because usually you get into a game and, you know, leading up to warm-ups and puck drop, there's a buzz in the building and you kind of start to feel that intensity. And Mm -hmm. what stood out to me was it was silent. (laughs) You know, it's like minutes away from this intense playoff battle and you could probably hear a pin drop on the concourse level. It was just (laughs) such a kind of weird different atmosphere for playoff type hockey but then I will say as soon as the game started and the puck dropped it felt like the action on the ice did capture the usual type of intensity that we're used to in a way it almost kind of felt like hockey in its kind of its purest form because you know you had just this kind of black backdrop with the empty seats so your eye was like tunnel vision down to the ice and you couldn't really take your eyes off of it. And everything was amplified. The, the, the sounds of pucks hitting sticks and bodies being crunched into the boards. It almost felt like hockey in its purest form. But um, totally a different vibe than any type of hockey game I've covered in my career. That's so cool. How, how far away from the bubble were you uh, staying uh, in your hotel? So I was still in downtown Edmonton, so I was, you know, a little removed from it, but not too, not too much. Like I could walk around outside the perimeter. Um, it's it's set up where there is fencing, and then they kind of have like tarps over that um, to kind of cover the fencing. But there are points where you know if you need to cross a major street or you know get across the sidewalk, sidewalk where they will open the gate for you, um, and they will let you know whether it's traffic or people walking you know there are opportunities for you to cross through like a pathway in the bubble um and you can kind of still see sometimes even though like i said they have kind of tarps over the fencing you can still kind of see through there the pathways that either players or personnel take 
Um, so it is kind of an interesting setup. And I think you see like people were kind of, especially early, kind of gravitating towards the bubbles, trying to see if they could catch glimpses. <laughs> Um, of what's going on since it really is right in the middle of downtown Edmonton. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that's one of the things I'm fascinated by. Like, you have these two hockey-mad cities in Edmonton and Toronto, and you have what's basically a bunch of all-star teams that are just, like, in the middle of these cities, and they're staying there, and and yet they're, like, in a dome. They're, like, in a TD. You can kind of, like, you know where they are and you know where they're going and everything, but they're not leaving the dome, right? So what was that like? Like, did you see people like autograph hounds and people like around the perimeter and trying to get <laughs> players attention? Like what, what was that like uh, on the outside of the bubble looking in? I didn't, but I did see while I still was in quarantine and obviously um, the bubble had opened, like, you know, players and teams had arrived. There were fans that were going down there, I think, just to try to catch a glimpse. <laughs> um, and, and I think it was tough for them initially, especially because, um, you know, everything was so secure and it was the first few days. So maybe people weren't as mobile in the bubble because there were those, I think the first five days players pretty much had to stick with their team, go to practice and then go back to their room. Um, but I think as, you know, things kind of start and, you know, players got to be more mobile and get around the bubble. Um, you could probably catch more glimpses. I did, what I did notice more often was, um, team buses. Like the, the charter buses, especially I think more early on when they were um, taking, you know, teams to practice, which the practice rink was 25 minutes away from downtown. Um, so you would see like buses and it would say either NHL or it have like a, a logo of the team that it would be transporting. Um, I saw buses kind of more frequently um, than actually seeing kind of players milling around. But you're right. I think it was. You know, for me especially, it felt kind of fitting because I'm from Edmonton. This is where I had my introduction to the sport and where I fell in love with the game and it turned into my career. And to have it here in this type of city that is just, you know, like you said, crazy for hockey. The fans love it. I do remember, too, um, you know, ahead of the very first game in the bubble, which was Edmonton-Chicago, like, fan on the street, you know, they parked their vehicle, they had it decked out in Oilers logos and flags and just, you know, that would be oh normal my. probably for a game, fans streaming into the arena and there's that excitement and energy and here's just, you know, people just now standing on street corners doing it because they can't get in and um, there's still, I think early on, you still felt that buzz from the city, even though fans weren't being let in. I want to switch gear to the wild. As I mentioned, they didn't even make it to the first round. It was the qualification round, but um, listening to Bill Guerin talk, uh, his exit interview, he says there things need to change with this organization. He inherited a roster that we know is old and slow and is bloated by some old contracts. They do get Kirill Kaprizov next year, but uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know if Miko Koivu is going to come back. What are you expecting this summer? Do you think that this is the summer where there are some big shakeups and big trades? Um, wh what do you think is going to happen? I wouldn't be surprised because I think that's the tone that Bill Guerin has set. And, you know, you're right. He hasn't even been on the job for a year. Like, he was hired at the end of August, and that was such a really short runway for him to try to affect any change to this roster before training camp. And essentially, you know, he didn't. He did sign Jared Spurgeon to that long-term contract extension. But really, I mean, he didn't, you know, truly change this roster until the Jason Zucker trade to Pittsburgh in February. And I think that trade and then the ensuing decision to – fire Bruce Boudreaux in mid-February, later than we're used to seeing, he's not afraid to kind of shake 
things up. And I, and I think now with more opportunity, a wider window to actually change this team, even though it's still, a, you know, not a typical off season, um, you know, and he kind of acknowledged the landscape is kind of difficult to handicap right now. Um, so that may play a role. You know, he's right. And that's why he was brought in to, to, to affect change. This isn't the roster that he picked. It's what he inherited. So I wouldn't be surprised if he starts to make some uh, decisions that, you know, adjust the look that we're used to seeing for this wild team. Part of that obviously could be Miko Koivu if he decides to retire, at least retire from the NHL. Um, but, you know, besides Kaprizov's addition, like you mentioned, this team still obviously looks like it needs help. It needs help up front. It needs to figure out its goaltending. And I think, you know, the tone that Bill has set is that, you know, he's the guy who's not going to be afraid to make those types of moves to incite improvement in the areas that this team needs if it's going to be that team that it's long coveted to be, and that's a Stanley Cup contender. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I found interesting about Garen's post-series uh, comments was talking pretty candidly about the goaltending. How do you think they're going to handle that position next season? Yes, that was a very, I think, probably the most raw, honest takeaway from how he summed up the season was that he said he was disappointed in the goaltending and that he doesn't see a set hierarchy for next season, which is interesting because technically, I mean, the Wild is set in terms of it has two goalies under contract next season in Devin Dubnik and Alex Stalock. Um, so I think before they really can try to figure out how the competition will shake out, they need to decide what to do with Capo Kakinen. And he was their minor league goalie last season. He, he was the AHL goalie of the year. Um, he certainly didn't look out of place when he made his NHL debut during the season, and he had a short abbreviated stint when Dubnik was out. So I think they need to really decide if they want to give him a shot or he's better suited to get more time in the minors. Um, but after that, I mean, he pretty much said if there's an opportunity to find help he will explore that and do that and so maybe this is going to look completely different than it has been the last few years I know we talked to Dubnik before Bill made his comments and he's expecting to come back uh, and be the type of goalie who will get that number one job who will be the one to start the majority of games but uh, now the question is will he get that chance so I know center ice and you know solidifying the top line up the middle is important, but I think goaltending is way up there too. And, you know, that's going to be something to watch if the wild feels like they can find someone to go out and, you know, help either internally, maybe Kakinen or somebody else in the trade market or free agency. Hmm. I listeners, listeners of this podcast probably think I'm obsessed with Kaprizov and that's right. I am. So my last question <laughs> to you will be about him. Um, you know, I've just been fascinated by the courting of him, which, spanned three general managers and now that he's finally here you know we saw that video of him arriving at the airport they're taking him to Minneapolis <laughs> and you know to get acclimated to and said he's Dean Evison was hilarious he like goes up to him and like I'm Dean Evison coach <laughs> you are uh just I'm curious of what your take is of you know all of this hoopla that surrounds him and how much the organization is putting in to both make this kid feel comfortable but also make him thrive because to me it seems like their hopes and fortunes over the next you know maybe five ten years are really tied to him and him thriving there and staying there you're right it's funny so I've been now covering the team for nearly three years 
And that was a name that has been buzzed about, you know, since I got here. I just kind of heard about this Capri Stop, Capri Stop, Capri Stop. And it, it kind of felt like a pipe dream. Like, even though, you know, the team had drafted him, it was like waiting and waiting. And is he going to come over here? And is he going to sign? And, you know, Garen, obviously, like you're right, was the, the, the general manager to finally, you know, close the deal and get him to come here and sign. And uh, I think, though, you know, as much as the organization, you know, has hopes, and you see his potential and what he's done in the KHL and what he's done on the international stage uh, with Russia at the Olympics, World Juniors, I think they are going to be careful to manage expectations because you're right, you know, that was, you know, only his second time, you know, this trip to Minnesota in North America. Um, he just hasn't been here. And, you know, although I think he, you know, can understand the language here and there, that's a huge barrier. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see whether the team, you know, has to hire a translator, an interpreter. Alex Galchenyuk speaks Russian, and he's on the roster right now, but he's a free agent. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what the team does to try to help him settle in. But I think, too, I think on ice is going to be just as much of an adjustment, just adapting to the style, finding a niche. You're right. I think he is on a lot of teams' radars now in terms of, like, you know, Minnesota has this has this prospect, and he's finally here. I don't think he's going to fly under the radar, especially if he's on a line with Kevin Fiala, who has now started to, you know, turn heads and grab attention from other teams, um, you know, defenders. So it's going to, you know, take time, I think, just to manage expectations, let him settle in, and if he does find that groove, I mean, that is the piece that the Wild has needed. They needed that dynamic playmaker score up front. And like I said, if he develops chemistry with Fiala, it could be a pretty potent front you know, line for this unit and this team, but um, still other holes, I think, definitely to fill around him. Without question. All right, last one. Let me get, go back to the bubble real quick. For those who don't know, uh, journalists who traveled to Canada to cover the restart didn't get the Willy Wonka golden ticket that the players got. Uh, they had to quarantine in a hotel room for uh, 14 days. So two things on that. One, what was the, what was the toughest thing about that process for you? And two, how often did they check to see that you were in the room? Because I heard that's a thing that they're doing up there is to make sure that you're actually following through on the quarantine. Yeah, so the toughest part for me was just not getting fresh air and, like, walking around. Like, I had, you know... I had a spacious enough room, um, you know, where I had a, an area where I could work out. And, you know, I was moving from the desk, you know, to the couch. Like, I was moving around the room. But just I felt like I was stagnant a lot. Like, I just missed getting outside and going for a walk and fresh air. Like, that was, like, that was like top of my to-do list as soon as I could leave. <laughs> um, but you're right. Um, you know, I had kind of heard that, that, you know, that probably check on you. I didn't have that. Nobody reached out and checked on me. I'm wondering if it's because I was so transparent with what I was doing. Like I was, I was writing daily letters to my dad and I was obviously posting so much on social media. So maybe they thought, okay, she's there. She's, you know, she's covering it. Um, but it was, it was unique. And it's funny. You think, Oh, 14 days in a hotel. That sounds horrible. It wasn't bad. I don't know what that says about me. I don't know if it's like, I'm not a social person. Like I totally am. I, I like people. Um, but like, I was fine with it. I thought like the days went by fast. It was, it was the build up. you know, training camp was still going on. I was working every day. I think once I found my routine, like I would look up and it would be like five 30 and I'm like, Oh my gosh, another day done. Like check, 
checked that date off the calendar. Um, so it wasn't too bad. And I totally think now I'm like the takeout expert of Edmonton. <laughs> I had to have all my food, all my food delivered. And so I found some good spots. I found some hidden gems. And uh, it, it wasn't that bad at all, actually, in hindsight. Cool. Cool. Well, Sarah, where can uh, people find your work? Yes, StarTribune.com, obviously, for all my coverage of the wild. And I'm on Twitter at Sarah, two underscores, McClellan. And I'm on the same handle on Instagram with one underscore, Sarah underscore McClellan. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks for your insight on uh, on Bubble Life. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, our thanks to Sarah. Let's do some reader mail. Ranger Rob 13 Oh, this is a impartial uh, listener. Would you rather have Hughes and Heischer at center moving forward or Lafreniere and Kako on the wing? Positional advantage leans towards center, but Lafreniere projects to be the best out of the four. Well, Wait, good thing you have two very impartial people to answer this question. Yeah, I, know, I right? clearly am going Lafreniere Kako. I think that's the better pair. I'd ride or die with them. I mean, like... What do you want me to say? Uh, Jack Hughes wasn't really that good as a rookie. <laughs> like, Kako wasn't either. So maybe they, they no. X each other out. And then is it like Lafreniere? one of them had to get used to a North American ice. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, is Lafreniere going to be, I mean, it, it, you know, what is Lafreniere going to be? And is he sure going to make the leap from being, you know, a Ryan Nugent Hopkins to becoming Nathan McKinnon? And, I mean, mm. people have said he's got that skill set. As a Devils fan... I'd love to, if he did have that skill set. I'd also love if Jack Hughes became Patrick Kane. These two things might not happen. If I had to pick it, that's a See, from a philosophical standpoint, I'm going with the centers. From a talent standpoint, I'm probably going with the Rangers. That's, that's my fair. answer. Yeah. It's a good answer. Jamie S., now that six teams have gone home, is the bubble more fun or less fun for the players remaining? It's got to be nice that food truck lines are shorter. Without question, I would also say that it appears that uh, we have a real high school cafeteria situation inside the bubble where there isn't a whole mm. lot of interaction between anybody but you and your own team. So it may not necessarily affect teams in, in a major way outside of like, you know, is anybody using the pickleball court? Can we use it now? Kind of, kind of situation. You know, it's like, it's fun and I'm so happy that they're there and they're, you know, saying all the right things. Like how many times in a Zoom interview have you heard a guy saying like, the NHL has done such a great job. Or, like, there was air conditioning issues in both Edmonton and Toronto. We never heard any players complain. I just don't feel like we're getting the full picture of what's going on inside there. Everyone is just towing the company line. I, I know I had an agent tell me that, like, one of his clients um, had a problem with the food in, like, the first few days there. And it was going to kind of like NBA Fire Festival picture the food. Mm-hmm. And his agent was like, don't. Like, what's the point? Don't do that. Like, give them some time to figure out stuff. And also don't blow this thing up right now because they're trying to do the best they can. At the end of the day, I mean, these players probably don't care about, like, the line at the Tim Horton truck if nobody has COVID. You know, like that's probably, like, Correct. the biggest thing. So, you know, so far, so good. Finally, Trevor Connors, uh, who will be this year's Jordan Bennington, if not Corpusalo or, or Bennington himself, a goalie that seemingly comes out of nowhere to pull up sets? Um, I know I mean, your Ke- guy. Yeah, Kemper's probably the top choice. But I'll say this. I mean, Jacob Markstrom played really well, too, for Vancouver in that series against uh, Minnesota. And uh, wouldn't shock me. He's, he's been good all year. Wouldn't shock me to see him potentially outplay Bennington in that series against the Blues. 
there anybody in the East that you think could be upset upset Jones besides Carey Price? I mean, the only guy I can think of right now is Jonas Corposalo because we went into this tournament being like, oh, he was a longtime backup. Like, the first of all, we didn't even know he was going to start. We thought it was going to be Merz Lickens. Um, mm-hmm. And then we we're like, oh, okay, like, he'll be fine. He, he's not that much of a drop-off from Bobrovsky. And he has just been so damn lights out. And it's not just that, you know, five-overtime game where he was making ridiculous saves. Like, it's been through this entire tournament. I think he's been excellent. Um, and, and really, they just have a star on their hands. So that's my guy. It's so funny to think back to me. I, I remember talking to Yarmo Kekalainen about, uh, about Bobrovsky leaving after he left. And, you know, he's just like, we're going to give, you know, Corpusalo and Merzlikens and, uh, 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 you know, like 25 games, see what we have there. I'm like, did he did he know what he had here? <laughs> like, they're both really good. Maybe maybe they, they were a bit more comfortable in letting Bob go than they let on. Um, it's funny now, because I talked to Kika Linen in March, right before the season was paused at the GM meetings, and he was singing a much different tune. We were always confident in these two guys. We've had our eyes on right. development numbers for a while. We knew Jonas could do it. So oh, it's funny how those uh, confidence uh, swings can change. Yeah, when Bruce Lickens is letting like a 25-game winning streak, it's like, oh, we, yeah, exactly. we do all the time. All right, now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel's Hot Dogs. It's uh, the segment each week when we take a look at the uh, hyperbole and foibles and mistakes of the hockey media. I mean, I got to tell you, there's like a dozen options this week. Um, The Ottawa Sun not being able to differentiate between Jamie Hirsch and Catherine Tappan was very close to winning. Um, But I got to go with my former colleague, Justin Bourne, who is now with Sportsnet who tweeted infamously, have the Leafs Nordic players, Nylander, Kapanen, Engvall, and, and Janssen, been good? Maybe not. Have they been down, outright awful either? Oh, objectively, yes. Yes, they have. The gripe here, for those who may be not picking up on it, is grouping together the, quote, Nordic players, uh, you know, which is like a 15-year-old trope in the hockey media of like these soft Europeans and they their inability to play in the playoffs like it is it is so old it has got layers of mold on it I know that Justin's at Sportsnet now I did not think he had access to Don Cherry's coat closet to be making hot takes like this on social media calling out ethnicities of players it is ridiculous and rightfully called out by a lot of people on social because man come on the Nordic players. All right. Um, all right. That's time for puck headlines. Dateline Pittsburgh. Let the bloodletting begin. The Penguins let go assistant coaches Sergei Gonchar, Jacques Martin, and Mark Recchi. Mike Sullivan survives. Emily, how bad can the bloodletting get in Pittsburgh? You know, I'm just really surprised by these assessing coaches firings. And I think I've come down to it as Jim Rutherford wants to make changes. It's sometimes easier if guys contracts, they were all expired just not to renew them. Right. You, you can't, you know, maneuver a lot of this roster because of the cap situation, but, um, Conchar especially like that was Malkin's guy. Like they kind of all divvy up different guys on the roster. And I'm really curious to see how Malkin responds to this. Yeah, I, I agree. It should be interesting. Um, I think Malkin still remains, untouchable for the organization but it's going to be i mean oh for sure this has got to change and when you hear Sidney crosby start to like hint that the window might be closed for them to win kind of scary times for the he was baited into that answer though oh you know i uh i think the window's uh 
just fine. A little drafty, you know. Close a little <laughs> yeah. bit, maybe. Uh, Dateline Toronto. Speaking of soap operas, what's next for the NHL's greatest soap opera? Uh, Kyle Dubas, Brendan Shanahan, media availability today. All the players talked. I, I watched the whole thing. I got to tell you, it was like watching a, a Netflix series. Like every single interview was compelling. It was a new a new story. Uh, Kyle Dubas spitting hot fire about how criticism of Mitch Marner is the most idiotic take you could hear around these parts. Um, here's here's my my, my my ten second spiel on the on the Leafs. They remind me of the uh, pre crisis Capitals. They remind mm. me of a team that should the core should be kept together to grow together, learn together, figure out the playoffs thing together. But the key is, and, and Shanahan kind of referenced this, the key is you've got to bring in ringers from outside the organization that ha- can provide grit and that either play the style in which you need to win in the postseason or have actually won in the postseason. Look no further than the way Tampa Bay responded to getting outworked by the Blue Jackets last year. Barkley Goodrow, Blake Coleman, like these are the guys that now fill out the rest of that, that lineup, and those are the guys that are going to propel them to a prob- probably greater heights in the playoffs than they had last season. Um, and the Leafs don't have hardly any of those guys imported from elsewhere. Look at the Capitals roster when they won. Lars Eller, uh, Devontae Smith-Pelly, Niskanen, Orpik being the greatest example. Like, you've got to br- import these guys. All due respect to Jake Muslin, I think he's kind of that guy. But that you've got to import those guys um, from elsewhere and fill out that roster with players. They're going to be able to augment your core. Okay, and by those guys that you need to add from elsewhere, you just mean defensemen, right? Yeah, might be. <laughs> you just need to add defensemen. Yeah, Niskanen, yeah. Orpik, uh, Kepney. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, they, they need to, re- 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 you know, revise their blue line. Um Look, general managers. I think it's like what John Davidson just said, said with the center depth of the Rangers, and it's like you can compile all these assets then to get what you want, which is centers and defensemen. They've right. compiled all these talented wingers. They've got Nick Robertson coming up. They've got a lot of good talent up front. You got to make that lineup more balanced. You got to make your Ryan Johansson for Seth Jones trade kind of deal. Yeah, everyone's got to make that trade. Dateline South. <laughs> Dateline South Florida. The Panthers, this is the worst kept secret in hockey. The Panthers say goodbye to Dale Talon, finally. Uh, They are going after a franchise favorite, um, going back to the 1990s, uh, Habs assistant GM Scott Mellenby. Others will be in the mix. Um, I imagine Joel Quenville is going to probably, but you don't pay Joel Quenville like $5 million to not have him put input on who's going to be the GM. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Florida. And uh, Eric Joyce, who was the longtime assistant GM, assumed to be groomed to take over, did not, did not take over initially. It looks like they want to go outside the organization, have somebody come in and re- evaluate what's gone wrong. Yeah, you know, Dale Talon had a very long tenure there. But what he did last summer and just spending money as Band-Aids for problems, like that's exactly what they don't want to do. And they need a new, fresh set of eyes to come in. And really take stock. And I do think this is a team that's going to start spending a little less money. And it's, you know, convenient with the pandemic coming. They they should. But um, that is the specific reason I think they need an outside voice to come in. Um, just like a consultant and take stock of what's going on. Uh, Dateline Buffalo. The Sabres have new jer- new uh, new sweaters. I hate saying New Jersey's because it makes me think of New Jersey. The Sabres have new sweaters. Uh, they they change their, their kits like once every three years, seemingly. Uh, these are straight fire. Like, they're great-looking jerseys, but, I mean, 
I, I just I, I if you t- if you look at the last fifteen years or maybe twenty years of the Buffalo Sabers, it is it is astonishing how many different jerseys they've sold their fans. Like I mean, I, people in, in, in Buffalo, you know, I don't know how much disposable income you have, but how much of it has been committed to buying all these dopey jerseys they keep on making? But they're nice. They they keep upgrading, right? Yeah, they're, they've clearly gotten better. Dopey. Yeah, if if your if your yeah. baseline is the Buffa slug, and then you make that ugly <laughs> gold jersey, and now you've moved yeah. back to classic classic looks, like yeah, clearly they're moving in the right direction. Um, so that's at least one benefit. But man, just like settle on a look. It's like it's like being at a Lady Gaga concert. Uh, Dateline TSN finally. Bobby Margarita enters semi-retirement. Bob McKenzie is one of our favorite people. We try to get him on the show. He respectfully declined uh, because he is tired of talking about himself, and that's what makes Bob McKenzie really great, is that for being the standard bearer for NHL insiderdom for the last 20 years, um, the dude is is a humble guy. He's a nice guy. I could speak from personal experience when I came up as a blogger with Puck Daddy and was uh, uh, just a giant uh, pain in, in, in the behind for a lot of people. Uh, he was always really nice to me, and he always treated me as a peer and, and, and treated what we did with, with some respect, and, and I always liked that about him. And, uh, and he enters semi-retirement now, and it's going to be a bummer because seeing Bob McKenzie dropping Bobby Bombs uh, on trade deadline was always a fun thing. Uh, but also seeing Bob McKenzie... Uh, exhale and and be able to uh, drink margaritas in peace uh, without having to worry about looking at his phone also uh, a wonderful thing as well what do you think about bobby mack i think that he is one of those guys that i was really intimidated to meet and was way nicer than i could have ever imagined and he's just done a lot to grow the game it just goes about it the right way and i hate using cocky cliches there but it just feels appropriate it does he's good dude um all right that's the show for this week and it was a good one our uh, thanks to John Davidson of New York Rangers. Enough with the Rangers getting all this luck and, and, and good fortune. It's very difficult for me to uh, appreciate it, but I do also appreciate the fact that they they did this. I think hockey karma smiles upon teams that do it right, and the Rangers rebuilt right. So what am I going to say? Uh, and then uh, thanks to Sarah McClellan for giving us uh, a sense of what the bubble was like. Uh, you can read our stuff on ESPN.com. You can listen to my other podcast, Puck Soup. We put out a new edition after the draft lottery and dive deep into many conspiracy theories. And if I may, also wrote a story this week on ESPN.com about what it's, where, how the NHL made the fake crowd noise and who is uh, operating the boards to make the fake crowd noise. It's a cool story, uh, inside look if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that story. Um, please rate us, review us, subscribe to us. We love you. Love our show. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.